Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor who has designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects and single family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken also has owned his own construction company for over 30 years. And now, Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is here each weekend at this time dealing with the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. If you'd like to join our program, you can. You can dial 800-614-2975 or email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. I'm Jim Britta. Before we get going this week, we'd like to welcome those of you who are possibly listening to our program for the first time on WIZM, 1410 AM, La Crosse's news station in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We look forward to hearing from you in the weeks ahead right here with Ken the Contractor. Over the last number of weeks, we've had so many emails and phone calls regarding various types of basement issues. It's rather odd. I happened to be reading an article just a few days ago from the Indianapolis Recorder newspaper, and they were also in this particular article dealing with basement issues in their locality. So I, as I know the winter for most of you, you hope is behind you, although I know a lot of you are still looking out your window at snow on the ground today. The bottom line here is that the summer's coming. The warmer weather's coming. You have opportunity to get out and to investigate some of the problems you've experienced during the winter months. And I want to address one more time, I hope, some things that will point you in the right direction to solving some of these basement problems. We've had those of you call us that have water coming up between expansion joints and the slab in your wall, water coming through the wall, water coming in around pipes in the wall, water coming in through mortar joints. Some of you saying it's waterproofed, it's not waterproofed, we don't have footing drains, we do. What I want to do is talk to you about the proper way to solve a problem. And there are a lot of ways to patch and to cosmetically repair something so that it makes you feel good in your mind as long as the sun's shining. But the next time you have a heavy rain or you have snow melt, you're going to say, I didn't fix it. All I did was waste my time and money. And that's what I don't want you to do. I want you to think seriously about a proper fix. Now, before I go much further, I'm going to tell you for a lot of you that a proper fix something that is long-term, something that is permanent, something you don't have to worry about in the future, and something that you won't have to mess with when it comes time to sell the home, is likely to set you back a few dollars depending on the nature of your problem. In some cases, it can be as minor and as simple as opening up a foundation drain that has silted in or clogged over the years, maybe one you didn't even know was there. It's been closed so long. And these extremely heavy rains or snow melts causing water to back up and come through the basement floor or come in through those walls. So it can be fairly inexpensive. But for those of you that are saying, I know I've got a foundation drain. I know it's open. I've got visible cracks in my wall, whether it's a poured concrete wall or whether it's a block wall and the mortar joints are cracked. I just have water coming through. It's going to be more serious to resolve this in a proper fashion. So let's talk for a minute about some of the options. First, you know, you, you have waterproofing doesn't necessarily mean that all the water stays out of the basement. There's a combination of things that needs to take place. And if you have a substantial amount of your first floor, your basement below grade, you need to have not only the vertical surface waterproofed, but to do it according to the, the International Building Code as well, you also need to have foundation drain. And that space between the wall and perhaps at least the first foot to two feet of soil needs to be backfilled with stone. Now, what you're doing is you're creating a relief for the water pressure, the hydrostatic pressure that has a tendency to build up from the soil. 
and work its way into or force its way under a lot of pressure into these small cracks and joints in your foundation walls. And as waterproofing ages, especially the older waterproofing that in many cases was no more than a tar coating put on the wall, that tends to break down. It becomes brittle. It will wear out over time. And now you've got these small areas where water under pressure is working its way laterally into that wall space. And if there's enough water building up around your house, you're going to find that it will actually come up under the floor. It'll come up through the saw cut joints or the expansion joints, what's called a cold joint in that slab, where it abuts your walls. And many of you are sitting there shaking your head right now in the affirmative. You've been through this saying, how can this be? You have to relieve the water pressure. And that's the second part of proper basement waterproofing. It's not only the waterproofing of the vertical surface, it's also putting a drain pipe at a level that's below that floor. Usually it's beside or on top of the foundation so that water that runs through the soil horizontally finds this weakened plane, this area you've backfilled with soil. It has to fall to the bottom. It's going to go down to the drain pipe. That drain pipe's going to take it to daylight somewhere away from the house. And if you're saying, that's great, I have a basement that's covered four sides and I don't have any way on my property to run it to daylight, meaning you have enough slope uh, that you can do that, then you're going to have to look at a sump somewhere outside the house with a pump in that to pick that water up and to get it up to grade and let it run off. There are solutions for this. There's absolutely no reason that any of you need to be dealing with the mold and mildew, with the damaged furniture, with the damaged flooring, with tile being released, all of the issues that come about because we continue to live with or deal with wet basements. Now, I want to go on to also tell you for just a moment that when you're looking at waterproofing, if you're going to be doing something as extensive as what I've just described, I highly recommend you look at some of the membrane waterproofing products that are there today. There's one that's a national product that I particularly like and use. It's called Rubber Wall. It's sprayed on, but once it cures, over a few hours, it sets up like a solid sheet of rubber, and it expands and it contracts as your foundation and your, your basement wall moves. It covers cracks that may be in the existing walls, small holes that may be there. It doesn't involve a bunch of masonry work and prep work like a lot of the coatings do. There are other fine products that are out there that come in sheet form that can be applied a little more user-friendly by a homeowner if you're doing this yourself or you're in the process of building a new house. So those are things I want you to think about. Whatever you do, investigate the products that are right for your area because, again, not every product is going to be suited for every part of our listing area considering that we're across the country. So there are some of you that will need to spend a few dollars, and there are others that are saying, I just need to unclog that footing drain. Whatever you do, pay some attention to it because it can cause structural damage, and if you have structural damage, folks, now you're into really big dollars. And the other thing is, there's a lot of these products and companies out there now. There used to be a handful, but they seemingly have exploded in the last couple of years. I think they have because of the damage we're seeing in basement areas. Insurance companies are prompting people to take action where in the years they have not. They're not going to cover you five and six times for the same type of claim. If you've got an issue, they want it fixed. They want it taken care of. Yeah, and as you talked about, there seems to be products you can spray on, apply yourself. A company can come in and do it. And then, as you mentioned, the ones where they come in and actually do some excavation work around the foundation and try to rectify the problem, that's where you get into the big money, isn't it? That's where you get into the big dollars. It depends on whether you've got concrete adjacent to the house, a driveway, what your landscaping is like. But there's no substitute for doing proper waterproofing and 
installing some type of a relief drain below that floor, that's going to take care of your issues permanently. Yeah, and that's the thing you're looking for. It's a one-time fix. You don't mess with it in the future. It's not a constant problem. And when you get ready to sell that house, you just don't have to worry about it. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he is here every weekend at this time taking your calls, questions about your home inside or out. You can always reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can email your questions to Ken's website, and that's KenTheContractor.com. There's also a whole lot of very valuable home improvement information available at the website. Coming up in just minutes on this edition of Ken the Contractor, about a half hour from now, our website of the week deals with information on solar-powered operable skylights. And also, one-on-one, Ken talks with somebody from Dow Building Solutions about their revitalized home project. That's coming up on Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here weekends at this time answering questions about your home inside or out. A couple different ways you can get your questions to Ken. You can give us a call. You can always reach Ken at 1-800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email questions to our website, and that is KenTheContractor.com. And, Ken, we've got an email. Uh, It's Richard out of Dallas, Texas, up first. Yeah, and I think uh, in your part of the world, Richard, you're in a transition season where you've gone from uh, hot to cold and cold to hot and back and forth. You're not sure which way to go as I follow the weather patterns across the country. But yours deals with your heat pump. You said our house has a heat pump, which has worked well for about six years. I've noticed recently that when we need heat, it's warmer than normal. Do these units produce warmer air with age, or has it been working improperly for these last number of years? Well, Ken, I wish, uh, Richard, I wish I could tell you that uh, they produced warmer heat as they got a little bit older because all of us then would just be hugging these old units and want to keep them around. But that really isn't the case. What I'm afraid you're probably experiencing is the fact that something either in your thermostat or within your unit is causing the auxiliary heat strip to come on. Now, that's not good news. I guess it is on these days from time to time that you're calling for some heat, but it's not good for your energy cost because that power meter on the side of your house is just whirling around at a pretty good clip, and the public utility there is really happy with you because you're spending more money each month. I think you need to have this service, but first you can do some checking on your own, typically on most thermostats, not all, but on most, and hopefully yours is this way. You're going to have a light, uh, maybe a blue light, maybe a red light, maybe a green light, but there are colored lights that come on the thermostat when you have the first stage of the auxiliary heat engaged on a heat pump system. So I want you to check. Put it in heat mode, but don't shove it up more than about 2 degrees above what the inside temperature is. Because usually if you go 4 or 5 degrees, that first stage automatically kicks in anyway. So I want you just to nudge it up the next time you've got it in heat mode and see if you notice after it runs for a while or even if it starts up with that auxiliary heat light on. That's going to tell you that there's probably something wrong either with the compressor or in the controls, allowing perhaps both the compressor to come on in the heat pump uh, mode as well as the auxiliary heat strip. And if you notice that, then clearly you need to have a service tech come out and deal with it. But if the temperature is feeling much warmer, heat pumps produce what I call a cool heat. They will warm your house. They will keep you comfortable throughout any uh, heat season that you may have. But it's not that very warm or hot heat that a lot of us are used to from the old electric resistance heat or from oil heat. So clearly you have an issue there. I wish I could tell you that it just produced warm air because it likes you, but that's not the case. Check that out on the thermostat and 
call the service person as soon as possible. I know you're getting out of the heating season, but you want to take care of this sooner rather than later. It could mean that you have a compressor issue, so you've got, you have some negative impact when you need that cooling. And I know in Dallas, during part of the year, you need a lot of cooling. During a lot of the year, you need a lot of cooling. Let's go from uh, heat pumps to hot water heaters. Here's a voicemail question from Hank in Virginia. Uh, your uh, discussion of uh, uh, the water treatment reminds me of water heaters and the tankless water heaters specifically. Uh, wondering um, uh, what the merits are of those uh, as far as cost, maintenance, and so forth relative to a tank one, which I see uh, has something as a reference to anodes with my tank one. Anyway, um, I'd be uh, glad to hear from you on that. Thanks. Bye. We do talk about water softeners, water treatment from time to time. In fact, we have just on a recent program, and I'm always glad to speak about this. Now, you're asking specifically about tankless water heaters and the anodes that exist within the standard water heaters. First, let me deal with that because I talked about that not long ago. Someone had a particular issue with an anode rod in a water heater. There are different types of anode rods, and they serve different purposes. But the primary purpose of all of them is to help add some life to the water heater. Even though the water heater is manufactured with a lining in it, you've got water in it constantly. There are different minerals that in different uh, different types of minerals that's in the water from around the country, and it can be corrosive over time. So the anode rod is somewhat of a sacrificial uh, piece of material inside that water heater that attracts these elements these minerals that want to deteriorate the lining or the exterior of your water heater. So that's what the anode rod's primary purpose is. Now, the let's talk about tankless real quick, though. Tankless uh, hit the market probably 15 years ago in a, a big enough way that most of us started talking about it. In the earlier years of the tankless water heaters, I don't think we knew as an industry or we paid as much attention to facts that we do today or even consumers. And we thought, oh, a tankless water heater, you plug it in the wall, you run water through it, it heats the hot water, and that's the purpose behind it. It does. It's instant. It's on demand. You're not heating a reservoir on a constant basis. But one thing that everybody has learned, and we've installed a number of these in our business uh, from going back for many years ago, is clearly you have to pay attention to the demand. It has to be sized like anything else, just like the electrical service, just like a normal hot water heater. You're not going to put a 10-gallon water heater in a four- or five-bedroom house with a big kitchen and uh, five people living in it because, folks, you're not going to have enough hot water. The same holds true with the tankless water heaters. It has to be sized with the heat element, whether it's electric, whether it's gas-fired. It has to be sized large enough for the way you live in the house, the number of people using the showers, the dishwashers, the washing machine, all of that going on at one time. If you purchase a tankless water heater, electric or gas, and it's sized for your home, I think you're going to find you're quite happy with it. If you're doing this in new construction, it's less costly than doing it on a retrofit. Many times on a retrofit, you may have to upgrade the electrical service if it's not large enough to accommodate this, or you may have to bring in a gas line if you don't have any LP or natural gas already feeding the house. So if you're under new construction, that's the time to give serious consideration to what you want to use for your hot water. But the tankless water heaters do work well from everybody I've talked with that has lived with them for an extended period of time if they had the right size unit put in place. Now, I've talked to some folks that regret what they put in. They were looking at price point. It was undersized, and they're saying, you know, it works great short-term for us, but when we've got the kids taking showers and two bathrooms, my wife has the washing machine on, I'm doing some other things in there at, at uh, say, a laundry tub or a kitchen sink, 
we can run out of hot water or it gets at least warm as opposed to hot. And that's where we are short-sighted. So don't take that approach. Be sure that you pay attention to what your needs are. And any of the wholesale houses can help you with that. Or if you don't trust them, Find a local plumbing engineer. You can find him in almost every community for just a few dollars. They will look at what you need in the house, and they'll tell you the size that you need. But these do work, and they are energy savers. If you're going to buy one, especially if it's electric, you want to look for one that's Energy Star rated, and you may find this year, and if you put one in last year, that you're eligible for a tax credit also uh, from the federal government. Well, and I think you bring up a very important point, and that is uh, if you live in your home for a long period of time as the family changes, kids move out, and the demands and need for that hot water will tend to change. You may be able to get away with that tankless system that you couldn't when everybody was in the house. Yeah, things do change, but you also have to look, I think, long-term at what the house is designed to accommodate in terms of number of people for your use or perhaps for that future occupant of the home. Is this going to be a negative when it comes time to sell it? There's really not a lot of difference in buying one that's 75% of what you need versus buying one that's really 100% of what that house demands. That's why I'm saying to folks, don't be short-sighted about it. I know I'm just like the rest of you. I look at price. I'm driven so much by that many times, but sometimes price is not where you need to be. It's more about dealing with the right product. So that's what I remind you to do. I hope that answers your questions on both the anode rod and on the tankless water heaters. If you have others, follow up. Well, and the other thing that you've also mentioned that more and more people are doing, even if they have the a traditional electric hot water heater, is turning it off during the day if nobody's in the house. Why heat hot water if nobody's going to use it? I, I will tell you, a lot of people don't believe me with this. I discovered this on my own probably 20 plus years ago, and I've done it ever since. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Yeah, He's right here answering questions from you about your home at 800-614-2975 or email them to the website kenthecontractor.com You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Braid along with Ken Patterson. Each week, Ken is here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. This also is the show where people come looking for professional answers. If you've got a question for Ken, you can always reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Follow us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and on Twitter at Ken Answers. And, of course, you can always email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. Time now for this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels. All to make your life better, provide options, and save money. Joining me now is Gary Parsons. Gary is a fellow in Dow Building Solutions Research and Development. As he tells me, a senior scientist, so he knows what he's talking about. He is, as I said, with Dow Building Solutions. Gary, welcome to the show today. Yeah, thanks, Ken. Glad to be here. You have a project that's called Revitalize Home. This is a retrofit residential construction. And I think when our listeners follow everything you have to say, they're going to be fascinated by this in ways that they can save energy for very little cost. Tell us what Dow is planning and what your research is revealing. Great. I'd love to do that. So this is actually a really neat little case study project that we've got in our in our corporate hometown of Midland, Michigan, which is where our, my office is. We found this home that uh, is about a 800, 900-square-foot home, one-story ranch home over a full basement, built around 1970 or so, that uh, has virtually had no energy improvements done on it since it was built. Original windows, R11 bad insulation in the walls, about six inches of rolled-out fiber insulation in the attic. No air sealing has ever been done to this house. You know, we chose to take this project on so we could demonstrate to people how easy it is to go do retrofits on homes and improve their air leakiness and improve their insulation performance. 
this house, we started, and our approach was to do kind of systematic approach, where we could take products that are commercially available, used together. DIYers can do these these kinds of projects. Pros can do these kinds of projects. And we said we're gonna we're gonna tackle this thing by doing like a below grade system and an attic system and then a above grade wall system. Kind of like you know you don't have to do it all at once. You can kind of break things up and do these systems as pieces as you can afford to do. So like most of us on a budget, this is something you can put in a budget one year, next year, third year, whatever. But you're gonna save immediately. Absolutely. And, and we kind of took our approach and said we're gonna do our system based on how easy is it to access something. So this home is typical of a home that you might find that's of this age. Basement was concrete block units and little damp, cold, didn't smell really very good at all, not a very pleasant place to be. So we tackled that first because that's where the easiest access is. So we used polyisocyanurate insulation on the walls, which is our trade product is called Thermax. So it's a rigid board foam product that's available in, you know, in any number of, of building supply shops. And we adhered that using a product we call Great Stuff Wall and Floor Adhesive. So it's an easy DIY kind of approach where you can buy the boards. They're light. They're easy to, easy to cut. You can, you know, shape them around plumbing penetrations. You adhere them up to the wall with foaming urethane adhesive and then uh, and you're done so like in a house of this size where it's you know 700 800 square feet below it, it's a job that you know a relatively competent diy type person can do this in a day it's it's that easy to do so then we followed that up using a, a two component spray foam a product we call froth pack which is you know kind of thermoset foam chemistry and we did the band joist area with that because it's really, really important to seal any air leaks in a band joist. And you get the additional benefit of getting some insulation value performance out of that as well. So then we went up into the attic. We knocked a couple of hundred CFM cubic feet per minute of air leakiness out of the house just by sealing the downstairs off. And, and air leakage, you know, in addition to having good insulation, you got to have low air leakage to help save energy. So that's we, we tried to tackle both at once. We then went up into the attic because that's the next easiest place to go get access. And we pulled all the old insulation out and we did an air sealing job around all the the top plates of the exterior walls and the interior walls so it's you know where you see the the two by four kind of between the uh, the back side of the drywall you got to get all those gaps sealed we uh, built boxes out of the same thermax insulation to go over our can lights and then air sealed those with froth pack so we did all this work to try and make sure that we had all the gaps and cracks sealed and then we blew a whole bunch of cellulose into that attic space so that's what we did up in the attic and I will tell you that this house had a leakiness factor of around 2,000 cubic feet per minute. Wow, that's substantial. Test. It was very, very leaky, very leaky. By doing the attic job, we dropped that leakiness in about half. So then after we did the attic, we went and, and tackled the walls. We worked with uh, Plygem as a provider of vinyl siding, and they sent the products in. We peeled the old siding off and applied an inch of styrofoam insulation all the way around the exterior of the house and then applied new vinyl siding onto this house. Now, one important point I want to make is one thing we didn't do is change the windows because a lot of folks... So the you have the original they, 1970s windows the, the original, in the home. The original windows are in the home. And I will tell you, this house, from a leakiness standpoint, started at 2000. After all the measures were done, we ended up at around 800. A huge reduction in air leaks. And, you know, why is that important, right? Well, you pay to condition this air that's in your building. The worst thing you could do is pay the money to condition it and then leak it out again. It, it's all about saving money, and air leakiness is, is really, really important in that regard. We, You know, a couple of key learnings, you know, we're able to show people that even with old windows, you can still manage to add foam insulation on the outside of the house and integrate things back together, and it looks awesome. And uh, this house, it's a lot more pleasant place to be in. You can go downstairs in the basement now. It feels dry, it feels warm, and it smells better. These are all just, you know, easy things that uh, that many DIYers can do. Certainly pros can do it, and the savings are, are fast and real. And none of the 
products you've identified as far as basement or attic or products that, again, most people can't handle. They don't need any special equipment. They don't need a lot of special knowledge about that. It's fairly lightweight. You don't need a, a forklift or a crane to be dealing with these things. And the other side of this, from my experience, a lot of folks may not know, but as a builder, these are relatively inexpensive items. That's exactly right. If, if you're only tackling your ceiling and you don't even want to add insulation, you can go to the store and buy cans of the one-component polyurethane foams, like products like Great Stuff, and even go you know go totally crazy and, and get a pro gun to install them with because that makes it even easier. And you can do an air sealing job on your house pretty inexpensively over a few weekends worth of time, and it will pay dividends. Certainly something I recommend to all of you. So many of you call and write me about this. This is a very simple way to put money back in your checking account, back in your pocket every month. You put a small investment out up front. You take one area at a time, as Gary has talked about today. You work it into your budget over time, but you will immediately start seeing a payback. Now, Gary, for more information on everything we've been talking about today, where do folks go? Because I know there are going to be plenty that would like to see some follow-up on this and maybe a little more than we have time for. Yeah, a lot of the data that we collected around the Revitalize Home Project is on a site called www.revitalizehome.com. So a lot of the information that I've shared with you today is, is out there on the site. And, uh, you know, stay tuned for more data as we continue energy monitoring and, and learn more things about it. Well, I look forward to it. We'll be bringing more of this to each of you. You can also check out all the other Dow products at DowBuildingSolutions.com. There are more items than you probably want to be working with on any Saturday, but there's a solution to every problem you have around your home. Gary Parsons, we appreciate you being with us today. We thank you for all the research and the input the Dow is providing to the industry and to the consumer. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Ken. Thank you. It's absolutely amazing what we can do around our house to conserve energy that costs almost next to nothing. And you recall from time to time, I talk to you about checking periodically, at least once a year, the caulking around your doors, the trim on the outside, your windows, to be sure that if you had a penetration around, uh, maybe a new line that was put in, a telephone line, a cable line, that that's sealed. And you're saying, that can't have a whole lot of effect on it. It's just a very small hole. Folks, you take a number of small holes, and eventually you've got a large area, uh, the equivalent, where you have not only the house leaking that warm or cold air out, but you also have that outside air coming in and the potential for critters to get in. So what Gary has just talked about is something that's not going to break anybody's bank, but it is, and it's also something that almost every one of us can do some part on our own. If you're looking to build out your basement, that might be different. But when it comes to caulking and plugging holes, it's a matter of looking and paying attention. And can't say that this often, but I know 100% of you listening are all trying to save money on your energy costs. We've got to take a break. We'll come back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. This is Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here to help you out with that project you're trying to deal with this weekend or that little nasty, annoying problem that you just can't seem to get done right around the house. Ken is here, and you can always reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or send your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. That's where we're going right now. We're heading to Anderson, South Carolina, and Jill has got one of those problems, Ken. It wasn't her fault, but she's got to clean it up. Yeah, it's not her fault, but now she has a problem. And, Jill, we appreciate you listening to us on WRIX 103.1 in Anderson. And here's what you're telling us. 
It says, first you're saying, good news, it's starting to feel a little like spring, finally, in South Carolina. It said, we had a load of mulch delivered this week for our planters and beds. And said, that really is all the good news. The bad news is the dump truck drove over the edge of the drive and broke a section of concrete out that's about two feet long and comes in about a foot. Do I have to tear out the entire section to have this hole repaired, or is there a simple solution that will look good? Now, that's your key, that will look good. said, I really don't want to deal with the broken concrete and jagged edges. I don't want to have those left there. And you go on to tell me that you're really puzzled and upset. And you need some direction all at the same time. I understand. These are one of the things that sometimes it's sort of an unintended consequence. I, I think all of us have probably dealt with, Jill, around our house, that your your spirits are up, you're enthusiastic, you're taking on a home project, you're ready to go with it, and all of a sudden something goes wrong when you're trying to do the right thing. First, I want to say, you've seen this now, but I want to say to all of our listeners that most concrete drives, I can tell you, around the house, probably 9.9 out of 10 are not designed to carry heavy traffic load, especially on the edges. They're not reinforced like we would reinforce a commercial drive that might be at an office building or a warehouse or something along those lines. The majority of the drives will take a U-Haul type load, uh, perhaps even a single axle dump truck with mulch on the back or a small quantity of dirt if it's in the center of the drive, but not even all of those. So what I've always told people about, and I'm going to come back to your your repair, Jill, but I just want to be sure others understand this. If you've got any type of a heavy load being delivered on site, let the truck, if it's mulch, if it's topsoil, let them pull up in a grass area and offload there. Do not let them come in the driveway because you're going to be where Jill is in many cases. And I know a lot of you are sitting there saying, yeah, I'm already there. I just wondered what to do with it. Jill, to go back to your question, in terms of the damage that you have, I would not take an entire section out unless you're just saying, I don't have any cracks and I can't stand cracks and it really bothers me. That isn't typically the case. And you're going to spend a lot of money to tear it out and replace it. What you need to do, and if you're not skilled or someone around your house is not skilled to do this yourself, is to hire a concrete contractor that will come in and they should saw cut this area so that you have a nice, clean, straight edge. And if it happens to be near an expansion or control joint, you want to take it a little further and you want to go to that natural break, the design break in that concrete, and cut out this area. And you want to be certain that the grade below it is properly compacted, which may have had something to do with this failing with the load of the dump truck on it. Maybe the soil had settled a little bit under this. So you want to be sure that it's properly compacted. And then they're going to want to drill and dowel into the edges. They'll end up with some reinforcing steel that actually goes back into the existing concrete. And then they will be using various concrete uh, additives, or not additives, but adhesives that will help it bond to that area. And then they're going to place this concrete. Now, what you're going to find when they put it in, whether you're using sacrete or whether they're ordering it from a ready-mix company, is the color is not going to look the same, at least in the short run, and it may not in the long run. This is where I said your question earlier about and have it look right will be very important. You may find that it cures out to be a similar gray, a little darker, a little lighter. But what you will find, if you can tolerate that, is that over time, with just normal air pollution, cutting the grass, airborne dirt, those type things, that it's going to fade and blend in with the balance of the concrete. And it should perform well because it's now in compacted soil and it has been doweled into the existing concrete. It's not just sitting there free-floating. Jill, sorry you had the problem. It's a long answer to a short question, but there is a solution, something less than taking out the entire concrete section. Well, let me ask you, why not have the, the guys with the trucks pay for their, any uh, repairs? 
you know, she can give that a shot, but the chances are pretty good. In my experience, that's not going to take place. Once they leave the road and you invite them into your property, you mm-hmm. tell them where to drop that load, you typically are responsible in most states, and you have to accept that. That's the reason I cautioned everybody up front, have these trucks drop the product, the mulch or the soil, in a sandy area adjacent to where you want it. If they can access it, you're going to have to move it. It's just that simple. You're going to have to take the wheelbarrow. You're going to have to do it yourself anyway. Why have them have the opportunity of damaging your driveway or crossing sidewalks? Yeah, and it's a lot easier sometimes to repair lawn or grass than it is concrete. Oh, much much more so, absolutely, and a lot less money. All right. Time now for our website of the week. We have one that I think a lot of you that send me emails are going to be somewhat interested in here, and that is uh, a solar-powered operable skylight. Yeah, and that's exactly what I said. I know a lot of you are saying, well, you've got to get on the ladder. You've got to act to, in order to raise this up. Then you've got to worry about rain and close it. You don't want to put one in that you have to have power to it. So you're doing the manual operation. Well, today you can find a new one created by Velux. Now, Velux, V-E-L-U-X-X, is a well-known name in the skylight business. But they've got a fresh air solar-powered skylight that opens and closes by remote control. The system requires no wiring, which ensures easy installation and the solar panel incorporates a rain sensor for automatic closing. That's pretty neat. So if it's raining, you don't have to be home if you left this open to ventilate the inside of the house. With the sensor on this, it will automatically close. No batteries. There's no electrical wiring to it. And it works on cloudy days and in indirect sunlight. So that answers the question a few of you are fixing to send me emails on. Now, the product is also eligible to make this a plus for a 30% federal tax credit under this year's federal tax guidelines. You want to go to this website, velux.com, that's V-E-L-U-X.com, and if you can't remember that, you'll find all these links I talk about on my website, kenthecontractor.com. All right, before we do have to take a break, let's see if we can help Grayson out in Topeka, Kansas. He's got a problem in his garage. Yeah, Grayson's issue is with a wall fan. Now, I'm going to paraphrase his lengthy email to me, and he says basically he's got a fan that's about 16 years old. It's a wall exhaust fan, and the fan is the garage is used as a hobby area. Now, Grayson, I can tell you from the weather forecast that I've seen and tracking your area for the last few weeks, you don't need an exhaust fan right now because things have been pretty chilly all around Topeka. But you're also telling me that last year towards the end of the season that the fan simply quit working. You couldn't tell if it was the fan, if it was the motor, if it was a pulley. How do you go about this? And you're asking me, do I need a whole new fan or do I need a pulley or a motor? Well, what I want to tell you to do is pull the belt off that because you have told me that it's a belt-driven fan. And a lot of you will have direct drive fans, meaning the motor's attached to the blade. But in this case, you've got one that is belt-driven. Take the belt off that. See then if you can turn the blade by hand. And if you can, that tells you that you don't have a bearing issue with the fan proper. Now, the other component to that is going to be the, the the belt itself. And if that belt is so worn, if it's frayed that it's just slipping, you should have been able to hear that motor running before you just shut the thing off last year and said, I give up on this. I'll deal with it next year. And I'm assuming that was not the case. You don't describe that to me. But when it comes to the fan motor proper, then you should be able to turn that fan on, power it up, and see whether that fan operates. If the fan motor itself operates, since it's isolated from the blade, then you may want to look at any other sets of bearings. There could be multiple pullings. I've seen some of these to see if there's an issue there. But if that fan just sits there and continues to hum, or the motor does rather, then that tells you you've got a pretty good shot. You've got a bad motor. I'd be taking that motor out, take it down to one of my local uh, electric motor uh, shops and see if they can determine the problem. New brushes, 
rebuild it before I'd go spend the money for a new one. So you do have options if you're capable of handling this on your own. That'll do it for this hour of Ken the Contractor. Be sure to join us once again next week. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.